from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. If you've been around this summer, you know we have been living in the Gospel of Mark and living with Mark's Jesus as we are introduced once again, hopefully afresh, to the ministry and the life and the faith of Jesus and, and discerning together collectively as a community of faith what it really means to be Christ's disciple. We are in the 12th week of this sermon series. We find ourselves still in the ninth chapter of Mark's Gospel. We pick up in verse 38. We'll conclude this morning with verse 50, pages 42 and 43 in your pew Bibles if you'd like to follow along as I read aloud. Listen to God's word to you and to me. John said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a deed of power in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Whoever is not against us is for us. For truly I tell you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you bear the name of Christ will by no means lose the reward. If any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell where the, the worm never dies and, and the fire is never quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how can you season it? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, Tom Wright is a British pastor and New Testament scholar, and he tells a story that took place during World War II. It was during the time when London was being bombed. Uh, one of the pastors at Westminster Abbey was, was standing uh, on top of, of one of the church's roofs and, and was looking out, and, and from his perspective, from his vantage point, he could see his home when all of a sudden a, a German bomber flew over his home and dropped a bomb, and it was a direct hit, engulfing it in flames and destroying everything that he owned. The only things he had left were the clothes on his back. 
Well, the next morning, the pastor traveled by train to Oxford to visit a friend. And while he was in Oxford, he decided that he would go to the shop to try and buy some of the things he no longer had, some of the things that went up in flame because of the bombing raid. And and he made a long list, and he entered the shop, and he gave it to the shopkeeper. And, And the shopkeeper began to read the list, and it was obvious to the pastor that that this man was a little bit agitated. He was a little bit perturbed. You see, the pastor was asking for a lot, asking for, uh, for a lot of things that they just simply didn't have in their inventory that were completely out of stock. And, and toward the end of the clerk's review of the pastor's long list, again agitated, said to the pastor, Sir, how can I get you all of this? Don't you know there's a war going on? Now, the irony of the the story is obvious. Of course, the pastor knows there's a war going on. Of course, he knows. It's the very reason why he's in the shop in the first place. It's the, the very reason why his list is so long. Connecting this particular story to our text from this morning, Tom Wright offers the insight that it appears, it appears that the disciples do not know there's a war going on. They do not know that there is a battle raging. If they did, the disciples wouldn't have stopped or bragged about stopping this rogue exorcist who was casting out demons in Jesus' name. The, the text itself is, is filled with urgency, leading us to think that there, there is something to be had in this moment, that there is a battle going on. There, there, there's a, a great contention in the world right before their eyes. They're living and, and breathing it. It's a battle between the forces of God and the forces of evil. It's a battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of the world. And so Mark paints a picture in this ninth chapter, in the 38th verse of this sense of urgency that doesn't afford the disciples the time. It doesn't afford them the energy to reprimand a rogue exorcist performing deeds of power in Jesus' name. There is an urgency here that does not afford the disciples the opportunity to play the role of judge and jury of who is a true disciple, who's on the inside and who is on the outside, who are the ones who are doing the real work of God and other ones who aren't really doing it even though they say they are doing it, which ones are in and which ones are out. Jesus is saying, friends, you don't have the time to do all those things. We don't have the time. The moment is now. There is an urgency about God's mission, about God's work. And so Jesus says concerning this rogue exorcist, don't stop him. Anyone who is not against us is on our side. This past week, the the two softball teams from our church we field two softball teams in the, the North Atlanta Church Softball League. Those two teams were set to play each other this week. Church members Henry Grady and Jason Cherry are each managers of, of those teams. And both Henry and Jason had the idea, I'm not sure if it was a good one, but they had the idea to invite me to play in the game with this little caveat. 
that instead of choosing sides, playing for one team, that I would alternate between the two First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta teams, two innings at a time. So here's the thing. My job was not to worry about which jersey I was wearing. My job was not to, to worry about what colors I was wearing. My job was to get hits and get on base and to play the field, which, uh, to be honest, I did with an outstanding level of mediocrity. <laughs> you see, it wasn't about the jersey that I wore, but it was about what I produced in the game. It's not about the jersey you wear, but it's about what you produce out in the world. And in a like manner, I think Jesus is saying that the urgency of the moment, the urgency of his mission requires them not to get caught up in team jerseys. It requires them not to focus on what colors they're wearing, but rather what they are producing in the world. Time is of the essence for Jesus. It doesn't matter if this rogue exorcist is not part of his inner circle. What matters is what this man's life produces. That's what matters, the fruit of his action. And what this rogue exorcist is actually doing in real time, sensing the urgency of the moment, he's actually bringing liberation and freedom to people who are oppressed. He is liberating them from that which weighs them down, these forces of evil, so that they may be welcomed once more in full into the life of the community. And one of the ironies of this text is that the very people this rogue exorcist is helping are the very people the disciples are called to love and serve. But we don't want that guy doing it because he's not part of us. He's not wearing the right jersey. And Jesus admonishes the disciples and says, we don't have time for that. But his admonishment doesn't stop there. It actually gets a little bit harder. He sees in their quick decision to stop the rogue exorcist something else. I think he sees the peak of a very slippery slope. He sees this kind of side choosing, this sort of power grab as the start of something that potentially may undermine the very work to which they've been called. Jesus says this, if you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. The good news of the gospel. I think we need to unpack that a little bit, right? Our English translation, stumbling block, this phrase is, is a translation of a single word, scandalizing which is where we get our English word, scandalize. That's the word for stumbling block here. And what Jesus is talking about, he's not talking about some sort of simple impediment that we put in front of others to prove themselves worthy to wear our colored jersey. 
That's not what he's talking about. He's, he, he's not talking about someone having to memorize John 3.16 or commit uh, to, to knowing by heart the Apostles' Creed or the Lord's Prayer. He's not talking about some simple impediment here that, that you need to accomplish in order, you need to go through in order to prove yourself worthy of God's mission. No, what he's referring to here is someone doing something or saying something that calls into question one's intent or calls into question one's character or calls into question one's integrity or their morality or calls into question their social standing or calls into question the fact that they don't belong to our group. And because of that, because of that calling into question, they have become scandalized. And when somebody is scandalized, they don't want to be a part of you anymore. When you're scandalized by someone else, you don't want to be in relationship with them. You don't want to be a part of their community. A mundane illustration, again, a mundane illustration of this is when someone is throwing shade or being critical on your Facebook feed or your Instagram right? They're questioning your integrity. They're, they're questioning your, your character. And you have no other choice but to unfriend them, to disconnect from them. And what Jesus is saying here, what he implores the disciples in, in, in his teaching here is, is do not scandalize these little ones to the point that they want to break away from me. Don't scandalize these to the point where they don't want anything to do with me where they don't want anything to do with my mission in the world. And Jesus thinks, I mean, he's quite clear about this. He thinks the policing the disciples are doing toward this rogue exorcist is exactly that. He thinks they are scandalizing him. The potential for him to totally walk away. Now, in regards to this phrase, little ones, it's not necessarily a reference to age. A lot of times preachers will preach a sermon and we'll talk about children here, but, but, but the Greek here does not necessarily imply chronology, age. It, it has the, the connotation of someone who is a novice, someone who is new to the faith, who's just beginning the faith. And perhaps Jesus gives this teaching because this rogue exorcist fits that category flush. You follow me here? Perhaps this rogue exorcist is brand new to the faith. Maybe this is his first exorcism. Maybe this is the first time he's participating in the mission of God. So Jesus, what he might be saying here is, do not scandalize this novice. Do not scandalize his morality. Do not question his standing. Do not take advantage of him. Do not use your power over him because he's not a part of us. Instead, look at his fruit. Look at his life. Look at what he is producing. Because if you do scandalize him, he may walk away entirely. If you do scandalize him, he may not want anything to do with my work and way of being human in the world. And if that happens, here's where it gets extraordinarily difficult. If that happens and you scandalize somebody, now mind you, he's talking to his followers. He's talking to us. If you scandalize someone, it would be better for you to have a millstone wrapped around your neck and to be thrown into the sea. And it's here that we recognize not just the urgency of the moment, 
but also the severity of judgment that comes to anybody who calls themselves a Christian who scandalizes someone else to the point that they walk away. To the point where they turn their back on Jesus and his kingdom and want nothing to do with it. I mean, just think for a moment of the thousands, the thousands of people who have been abused by Catholic priests or other clergy of different denominations who have walked away from the faith. Think of the parent who was so harsh or cruel in their expressions of Christianity that the child, now an adult, wants nothing to do with it. Or think of the one who judges their friends so critically, so critical are they for faith-based reasons that the friend sees no grace and no mercy and no future in following Jesus. Think about the theological left and the theological right and the ways in which they criticize each other. We sang about it by schisms rent us under. And the world looks at it and says, I want to be a part of that? So severe is this judgment, says Jesus, that it is metaphorically better for us to cut out that behavior, to cut out that instinct, that part of our life that scandalizes others, than to be thrown into the deepest parts of the sea or even to be thrown into hell itself. Now, friends, as a brief aside, every time I'm in the New Testament and I come to a passage where Jesus is talking about hell, where he's talking about fire, where he's talking about brimstone, we don't like that Jesus, do we? But he talks about it. And here's my rule of thumb. When he is talking in these terms, when he, when he leans into this rhetoric, he's basically saying to his disciples, look, this thing that I'm talking about right now, pay attention. Pay extra attention because if you don't get this thing right, he's talking to his disciples, not to the world. He's talking to his, to his disciples. If you don't get this thing right, there's going to be hell to pay. Anytime Jesus speaks like this, I think it's a verbal cue. I think it's a prompt for us to pay extra attention. Because what he's talking about here is a matter of life and death. So does he have your attention this morning? Does he have our attention this morning? Because our faith and our life has the power to scandalize. Make no mistake, it has the power to scandalize. Our words and our actions individually and as a community of faith may provoke someone to want nothing to do with Jesus. Nothing to do with his way in the world. Our words and our actions quite possibly could be the cause for someone's rejection of the faith. And it's not just the disciples. It's not just Catholic priests. It's not the fundamental parent. It's not just the, the judgmental friend. It's not just the voices on the theological left and the theological right. Friends, it's you and me. It's you and me. It's each and, and every day in our homes, in our work, in our relationships, in our schools, in this church. And part of Christian discipleship, says the Gospel of Mark, requires self-examination. It requires repentance of those behaviors. It requires repentance of those attitudes and those words and deeds that have the potential to scandalize. I know this is a heavy burden to bear for those of us who want to call ourselves Christians. I know that. But people are watching you. They are. 
They're watching you. The world is watching you. They're listening to you. They're reading your feed. They're, they're checking out your stories. Your, your family is watching and listening. Your siblings are watching and listening. Your, your children are watching and listening. Your grandchildren are watching and listening. Friends at school are watching and listening. Colleagues at work are watching and listening. There are novices. There are people in your life right now who are wondering if, if, if what it really means to be fully human is to follow Jesus. They're wondering that and they're looking at you. The text is, is asking, is there something in my life that may cause someone to walk away from Jesus? Is there something in my life that may cause another to abandon his kingdom work, right? I mean, there are parts of our lives. This is the beauty of this text, this metaphorical cutting out of these, of these body parts, right? There are parts of our lives that are represented by these hands and these eyes and these feet that they have the power to scandalize. You have that power. You have that power to, to turn someone toward the light or turn someone away from the light. So is there something in your life that needs to be cut out? If there is, get it gone. Cut it out. If it's your social media persona, cut it out. If it's bitterness, cut it out. If it's a hypercritical spirit, cut it out. If it's your cruelty, cut it out. If it's your sexist and racist words and behavior, cut it out. Is it your pride or arrogance? Then, then cut it out. Is it your idolatry? Then cut it out. Is it your judgmental spirit? Cut it out. Is your apathy toward justice and the moral good? Then cut it out. Whatever it is that has the potential to scandalize or, in fact, is a scandal in and of itself, then church, cut it out. There is both an urgency and severity in this message. Do not ignore it. Pay close attention because it's a matter of life and death. So act now. And be faithful for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the world. Amen. If you're able, I'd invite you to stand as we make our profession of faith. Church, I ask, what is it that you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. We recognize that each and every week we collect an offering, and I'm going to invite our ushers to come forward now to do just that. We also recognize that there are those of you who don't give in this setting in a worship context, but give online through credit card. We recognize all of these gifts in our time together. Uh, let me call the ushers forward to receive our morning tithes and offerings.
Last night when, when Katie and I were wrapping up the day, she knew my sermon trajectory and she's reading a book about the life of Madeline Lengel, uh, the author of Wrinkle in Time, uh, and also a prolific writer and speaker about the way of Jesus and the Christian faith. And Katie passed on this quote from Walking on Water, one of Madeline's books, that I think is a perfect charge for us today. She says, we draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. May we bear witness to that light and may the peace of God, which goes beyond all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. May that peace live inside of you this day and all the days ahead.